Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. All right, welcome back to the podcast. We're talking about today Crimes and Misdemeanors, 1989 Woody Allen film. And the thing that struck me going into the film is the setup of a kind of classic plot structure. He has this kind of dual parallel plot where you've got these two figures, Judah and Cliff, and they both are having similar issues and you get to watch them deal with them in different ways um, and even to meet. So the parallel lines meet at a certain point. So both protagonists have realist rivals. Judah has his brother, and Cliff has this comedian producer guy who tells him that you know he should get in the real world and, and do things, subject matter, that, that is of interest to real people. And both have consciences, in a sense, I mean, personified in the religious father, in the case of Judah, and, and the rabbi as well. And also this uh, philosophical professor, this European, for Cliff. And also this woman who's in some ways his, his muse, maybe, um, or a, an inspiration for him. And one of the ironies of this, this dual plot is that the greater malefactor, Judah, who murders this woman, ends up happier. I mean, in terms of the, the plot and the narrative, this is a nice kind of piquant ending. It's a provocative, it's a provocation on the part of uh, Woody Allen, the writer and director. That that totally, um, yeah, rings true for me in, in my viewing of it, too. It was, a first of all, to say it was a real pleasure to come back to this movie after seeing it a number of years ago um, as, a, as a college student, I think. Oh my goodness, I was just so, so impressed by it. I think it really is one of Woody Allen's very, very best films. But you're absolutely right, you know, to pinpoint, uh, Father Allen, to pinpoint the uh, the real nexus of the plot as that correspondence between Cliff and Judah. And, uh, you know, it was it occurred to me while I was watching it that this is a sort of a re- repeating, repeated motif in Woody Allen's films that it seems like in so many of them, maybe not all of them, but so many of Allen's films, um, Woody Allen, in this case, playing the, the character of Cliff, he's al- he's always kind of looking askance at some other male figure in the in the script in the screenplay, who um, and and, and the, the role that Woody Allen is playing is sort of the kind of like path- sort of pathetic but lovable nice guy. And the male figure that he's looking askance at throughout the storyline, both in this one and in so many of others, the other films, is this kind of obnoxious, um, extremely, br- extremely bright, extremely attractive, but ultimately kind of unlikable uh, other figure. And um, Woody Allen's character is always appalled that this jerk, this arrogant guy somehow manages to succeed in all the ways that he wants to succeed 
and often ends up being the guy who yeah takes the girl that the Woody Allen character is in love with. Um, in this case, that that dynamic is even brought to an even deeper level because not only is this other male figure someone who's kind of arrogant and annoying, but but actually he. Um, oh, sorry, I'm getting two characters conflated. We have the annoying character in Alan Alda's character, but then in this one, not only do we have that annoying, arrogant character, but we also have this guy who ends up murdering um, somebody, and he also prospers. And so, in in all this dynamic, um, what it kind of brought to mind for me is is um, just that repeating line in the Old Testament, right, where you have the, the question again and again being posed, why does the wicked man prosper? Why does the wicked man um, to act in total disregard of God and yet flourish? And then the mysterious line from the psalm, he wears his pride like a necklace. <laughs> That's right. You remember that, Father That's Allen? Right. I do. Yeah, I actually, if I may... I was just uh, enjoying this connection so much that I found this line from Jeremiah. You would be in the right, O Lord, if I should dispute with you. But even so, I must lay out the case against you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous live in contentment? You've planted them. They have taken root. They flourish and bear fruit as well. You're upon their lips, but far from their hearts. So, um, yeah, kind of uh, Woody Allen is a kind of modern-day uh, prophet <laughs> figure. Father Allen began his comments by saying there is a dual parallel plot. And I want, just for listener's sake, wanted to talk about our own dual parallel plot. We were actually together in New Hampshire recording this. That's just a fun comment. I'm the Judah <laughs> character. But I, I want to add an addition... I notice especially how in television of recent, the opposite tack is taken where it, it charts the course of sinners, not how they prosper, but how that prosperity leads to um, restlessness, despair, and ultimate defeat. I mean, I'm thinking of things like Breaking Bad. Um, I'm thinking of series like the the drug series on Netflix, Narcos. And and the same thing, too, with The Godfather. I mean, there's a lot of these interesting series that focus on criminals. And if you follow that to its conclusion, it doesn't lead to a happy ending for anyone. Interesting how they transform and start to make compromises and how their friends and family are affected by crimes. I definitely think Woody Allen, I'm just comparing genres like movie versus TV series, or even long-form movies like the Godfather series. A, a, a film like Crimes and Misdemeanors, kind of like the psalm, is how crimes look at first glance. But I think if you take the long view, um, the way of the wicked does not work out, not just because of death and salvation in the end, where will they go in the afterlife, but I also think even of earthly happiness. So I think some of that may be affected by the medium. I wonder aloud whether it's easier to sort of show this perception of of, of evil, people crimes when you, when you have sort of an hour and a half film versus something longer. You can do more of the long term look at, at where crimes lead people. Uh, the second thing I want to add is is how boring he makes sin seem, and I think there's actually value to that. There's 
whether it's adultery, whether it's murder, I mean, this is far from a thriller. But I I think there's actually a truth there, too. It's like, here are these people living in their own society in Manhattan, and they commit these sins. And really, there's a truth that sin is actually boring, and sin is within the human scope. It's not always these amazing acts and feats of doing these things. Yeah, that 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 was one of my first takeaways from, and maybe that's the style he films it in. But I, I think there's there's truth there for regular life. I don't know responses. Yeah, I think that uh, yeah that that is one of the brilliant parts of the film is the way that you have you know kind of the crime of crimes, which is you know a murder. It becomes just so doable and possible and kind of boring in a sense. Uh, and it's in the way that it happens. You know, he doesn't have to get his hands dirty. He just simply um, says, you know, go for it. And then it happens. And um, But just that line that, that is walked from him being a relatively respectable man to uh, to suddenly be, be, becoming a murderer. It's, yeah, there, there's not a whole lot of glamour that, that accompanies that. No, no big dramatic steps that were taken to suddenly have that happen um, in which he enters into this new moral category but it but it but it's nonetheless so believable the way it, it gradually gradually unfolds to me it, it I don't know about the two of you but it it actually kind of brought me back to a moral theology class where you know you have the attempts of moral theologians to try to try to unpack the complexity of a moral act and just how much interplay there is between a person's will and their intellect you know, I forget how many steps were outlined for a moral act, but it was something like, I don't know, 13 or 14. The question is, of course, okay, well, at what point do in those 13 steps of a moral action, does it really become a culpable moral fault? One of the conclusions that I remember us reaching in our classes, and that I think that bears out in the watching this film too, is that, yeah, it really becomes, you, you've, you've actually begun to cross the line into being becoming a doing some someone who's committing a gravely sinful act when when you begin to think of it as a possibility you know so when when he initially thinks of how wow yeah i could fix this problem i have in my life just by actually deleting this woman as a person when he there's initially he he kind of throws that thought in the trash can so to speak he's like i I wouldn't even go there i'm not I'm, i'm not that kind of person but a little bit later it comes back to him and that's not his 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 immediate response. He he's willing to act, at least entertain the possibility. And yeah, wow. Once once you get to that point in your life where you're actually willing to think through how you would go about deleting someone as a person, i.e., killing them. Um, yeah, you've really kind of finally crossed that initially seemingly invisible line between being a minorly sinful person and a majorly sinful person. I know that. Father Allen has more thoughts and points to make, and I won't have as many, so I'll just follow up on this one. I think of the phrase from John's Gospel, where Christ in chapter 3 is talking to Nicodemus, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And then the follow-up is, um, God did not come to condemn the world, but to offer the world eternal life. But then he says, but men, but this is the verdict that men have preferred darkness instead of light. 
lest their deeds be exposed. And I think that plays out in ordinary lives. Men are that way. Here's this man, not even to bring religion or Judaism in this case into it yet, which we can discuss, but here is a man who, you know, the reason why he kills her, his motive is she wants to bring this to light. It's like we're having an affair. I want to tell your wife because this this is how we're living. This is the reality and men prefer darkness to light. He actually kills her just for that reason of not being exposed. And I think two of other parallel films that, that illustrate sort of the the ordinary grave sins that play out in life versus a glamorized version of grave sins. And you could take Hitchcock as, a, as an easy example of rear window, the guy's watching this husband and wife fight in their apartment through his binoculars, and that guy who's fighting with his wife turns out to be the the criminal. There's not some twist. There's not some deep plot. And that's very much in line with this film versus another Hitchcock film like Psycho, where there's it's it's all built up around the murder and this, you know, that's sort of in the Hannibal Lecter genre of sort of the real mental derangement of some murder. But there's also films like Rear Window, which are, Ordinary fears can lead to ordinary grave sins, and I think there's value to both. So let me talk about the meaning of Judah. I think he's a kind of stand-in for the Jews after the Holocaust, because Judah is the tribe from which the name Jews comes. It's the tribe from which David comes and Jesus. And there even is that conversation among the Jewish family members in Judah's imagination between the atheist after Hitler and the observant father figure. Two Jewish responses. Uh, one is the atheist, in which there's nothing left in the world to be except to be successful and to support liberalism. But the problem with that is that without God, what is Jewish identity? And, and perhaps more fundamentally, what is uh, human identity? So it points to this, what I would call the Pyrrhic victory of atheism, which is that, yeah, in the short term, all is permitted um, because God is not there to define things, but nothing means anything anymore. You know, the other character, Cliff's character, Woody Allen, dealing with this issue in a different way by... Uh, following this guru or this professor, you know, and so I, okay. I think that this is probably uh, a Jewish thing after the the war of trying to find some kind of leader, like a Martin Buber or an Elie Wiesel or a Viktor Frankl, to um, lead the people out of their 20th century slump. But the the real issue that Woody Allen raises is that, well, his guru, at least, commits suicide. You know, so he's kind of questioning. And so, I mean, I couldn't help but see this kind of seg into real life where, like, the, all those figures I mentioned are kind of mid-20th century figures. They feel a little dated, whereas Woody Allen is a little newer. And so I, I feel like, in some ways, the quirky ironist... Woody Allen or like a Larry David has succeeded, fulfills the role of the kind of mid-century philosopher figure because the ironist doesn't need to 
lay out a whole philosophy. It's just kind of taking things day by day in a kind of ironic, humorous, enjoyable fashion. You know, so you have the theme of movie going. I think that's another kind of issue in itself. His kind of fascination with the golden age of cinema, you know, as as kind of like a way to cope with the lameness of his life and the lameness of our times. Father Tim was saying that, you know, the tone of his movie, the kind of whole uh, aesthetic is very ordinary. But compare that to the golden age of cinema where everything is very black and white and dramatic. It's almost like old movies are like the Greek mythology for him where where you you get some kind of splendor, some kind of glamour against which you live your, your ordinary kind of grimy life, perhaps. And then he has kind of the weird relationship with his niece, which is also a kind of immaturity or um, over-fascination with the past or with youth or like a refusal to, to face up to his own adult life, you know, in the present. Anyway, I think that like Woody Allen, both the character in the film and also maybe Woody Allen himself, although I don't know anything about him really, it's just more the popular image of him. He is a leader for our time. In the sense of being able to plot a a course th- through a, a world that has lost its faith in God, but still trying to find a reason to still put one foot in front of the other without losing total respect for life and oneself. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like he's moved beyond the question of atheism in a sense, not because it's been answered for, for this community or for, for our society, but just because it's kind of like it's, it's almost unanswerable for him and, and most people aren't going to get too far into it. And so the answer is really just to kind of make nice movies and enjoy movies and like throw up your hands at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that, 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 that that's well taken. And that is often the sense that one gets when with watching one's film, with, with, with watching his films, where there's this, he likes to portray lots of moral faults. And he, he's kind of a, um, in a sense, all of his films are kind of morality tales. But oftentimes they, they end up being a kind of almost like a, like an inverse of a traditional morality tale in which he's not so much trying to illustrate some like the goodness of some virtue or the badness of some vice but he's rather just simply saying hey look here's the array of humanity and we're all idiots and we we all make do dumb things and bad things and vile things and yet isn't it all kind of funny and here we all are all just kind of being human in, in, in an absurd universe. And I think that, well, number one, that's a really, I, I kind of hate that tone and that tenor because it, it encourages just a real kind of absurdist lackadaisical attitude t- towards the moral life. So I don't think it's ultimately helpful, but on the other hand, I find that in, in his films, almost in spite of himself, because he's willing to, try at least to take the human character seriously by looking at a human person and how a human person navigates different moral challenges and just the challenges of of getting through a day on this earth on this earthly life because he tries to do that in a somewhat serious way the the truth of the moral question kind of comes out 
and you actually end up seeing the 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 weight of a moral decision and again i say it's almost sort of in spite of himself in this film i would say that he's in this one he's actually almost outdoing himself and he's actually aspiring for something higher than what he's kind of settled for in a lot of his more later films but um but but yeah whether it's this one or or some of the later ones um yeah the his willingness to take an honest look at the human subjects um i think speaks beyond the kind of crippling worldview that he sometimes has. There's something about Woody Allen himself. You know, I, I think I think he's worth looking at and considering. I think, I think, as Father Allen very wisely said, you have this generation of commentators after the Holocaust who are philosophical, and then you have others who are satirists and comedians. And there is something about there's something about that. Um, there's a mystery there. Of, one who wants to be the comedian or the jester. Um, there is a pattern also of that they're harboring within a lot of times stuff that's undealt with. And, and maybe, you know, take, for instance, the tragedy of uh, Robin Williams as another example or, or others where I think, um, you know, the, the person who's laughing and commenting, there can be a lot of truth that is told about the human condition with, with accuracy and yet, the very thing that turning away from religion, turning away from God does, I mean, this is what the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were crying out about, is especially it's the cleansing of the heart. I mean, they're reminding Israel over and over again to cleanse their hearts. They're not actually calling for a more sophisticated philosophy. And they're not calling for an explanation. And, and I do think um, the opposite is true, where a lot of times religion will be accused of, oh, well, this is actually the cause of violence and the cause of hiding. But I, I mean, call me old-fashioned, call me biblical, but I do think that it is in some ways to be expected that sin will abound the further we turn from religion. I mean, this is, this is what the Bible's crying out in the prophets for, is the cleansing of the heart. And so um, it's just, it's sad to see a, a new generation of comedians and a new generation of storytellers and satirists who um it, it causes a great deal of scandal when when sin i mean any scandal even by religious people or whomever else um but i, I still kind of maintain that religion is the only real source of of cleansing the only claim to saints you know i mean if you look at movie makers and storytellers of the 20th century i just there are some that are probably morally somewhat good and many that are not, but I just don't find any saints among them. But there's something about turning towards only towards story and narrative and away from the ancient roads of religion where I, I just don't, I don't see saints anyway. I mean, they all can't be Terrence Malick, I guess, right? <laughs> Would he be a saint in your, in your catalog of filmmakers? What would you say? Well, take, I think Terrence Malick is, <laughs> is saint-like. But, but again, here's someone who, in the 21st century, is, is behaving much more like the Victor Frankl, the Elie Wiesel, which Father Ellen mentioned, of generations past. Because I was talking to someone about this yesterday, um, and this is a person who has had suicide in their family. And the same thing with... Malik, because his younger brother committed suicide, he took such a huge break in his filmmaking, and every one of his movies afterwards is dealing with that question of tragedy, and it's become a lens 
on God, nature, the world, the family is, mm-hmm. and and I, I think he, Malik is a is a philosophical and responsible, deep grappling with these facing tragedy. Yeah. I mean, this is going back into my. Um, I, I wanted to share with you all my senior thesis from college. I'm okay. not going to read selections. No, but it was Shakespearean tragedy and other things. But the the quick conclusion is that whether the genre is tragedy or comedy, the question underneath is, is human life valuable? You can cry or laugh and have the undertones of a narrative be, human life is so valuable. And it can be affirmed by either a tragedy or a comedy. I think Shakespeare's tragedy deeply affirms the value of human life. You can have tragedy or comedy that treats human life as expendable. It could be a crime show where the tragedy just is like, yep, these things happen. It could be a comedy where you're also kind of left a little empty. I, I feel this way sometimes with Woody Allen. I felt it with Oscar Wilde. I feel it with some a lot of things, like all of the cheap comedies of our age. And I would think Woody Allen's better than those, but it, it's it, life isn't just tragedy or comedy. I think underneath that, it's the sense of, does this person think human life is valuable or not? I think that, that that's very well put, and that, that probably is the one of the biggest, biggest dividing lines between uh, a worthy work of art and one that's not. Yeah, just just simply that. Is it presenting the human person as something of immeasurable worth or not? And you can really see, sense that in just the tone of a tragedy or a comedy. And I think Woody Allen's, the jury's still kind of out. I think he leans a little towards the lightness, a little bit of nihilism, but I don't know if he's fully on that side thoughts yeah well I, no. I i do i do argue that that he that he actually does redeem the and and present the human person as something very very worthy of uh or just of bearing true moral weight so yeah i would i would say he does not he's not guilty of that sin but father allen what were you going to say well this is just my last thought can it be the last thought for the podcast please please okay so this is something that you could say in a variety of contexts, but I just thought I'd bring it up here. Uh, Flannery O'Connor has a story in Wise Blood, I think it's the novel, where she brings this up. And that is just the name Jesus used as a curse. And uh, it just kind of struck me here, maybe because it's an especially Jewish movie, that people are using the name Jesus as a curse, an expression of anger. And I would just suggest, lay down this hypothesis that um, the fact that, that Jesus, the name of Jesus, is so apt for uh, blasphemy or sacrilege is perhaps a proof of his divinity. You know, why is it that people feel it so satisfying to, to curse with the name of Jesus? You know what? What? How did that happen culturally? I, you know, I haven't really looked into it, but it's just something. It's a question that I raise. <laughs> okay, so next time we're doing the Wizard of Oz, also on the Vatican's movie list. Okay, until then.